You know, when uh, back in the 70s, I used to belong to a church that most of our um, worship was we sang a few hymns. Uh, the preacher preached a little while, and we went to the altar, and we called down heaven. And sometimes we'd be at the altar for at least 30 minutes. That was a, not a very powerful day. But sometimes we'd be there three hours, which equi- was equivalent to glory, right? And when we started shifting into the Jesus movement and people began to gather, I'll never forget being in those meetings and um, not really knowing exactly what to expect. And we just sort of opened our hearts. And I remember the first night that we all just started singing, thank you, Lord, or hallelujah, hallelujah. And this whole group of people started singing this free song. It was, I don't know how to say how meaningful and demonstrative it was impacting the soul. And for the next few years, this, the service moved from the altar into the service. And we had profound moments of worship. What was unexpected to me over the years was what I, when I came in those initial moments to the first church I was at, a little Seventh of God church when I was 14, all the way till when I got in those bigger experiences where, this, where the altar call was in the services, I would come to those places with a kind of innocence, not really knowing exactly what to expect. But after having a bunch of experiences, I began to want to have those experiences. And instead of walking into the service with a kind of openness and anticipation and an innocence to, of, of whatever, I actually in a way became victim, a victim of my past. And I wanted to snag those old feelings. So then services started to become like, well, why didn't I feel that? Well, maybe the worship wasn't as good. And I started hearing, saying, and hearing others say, ah, the worship wasn't that good today. It didn't seem like that, you know, that this was right on today. And all of a sudden, coming to church was about recapturing old feelings instead of worshiping God. So one of the things that I've done over the last few years, and one of the reasons that we do church the way we do, is just to disappoint people. We're trying to recapture this. We're trying to say, this, you don't come to church to feel good. You don't come to church to try to snag an emotion. If that's your reason, stop it. And well, you, you can keep doing that, but we're not, you're going to be dissatisfied here because we're not interested in your emotions. And we love emotions being touched. But the reason we walk in these doors is to say, Jesus, we love you. Be glorified, Father, Son, and Spirit. And with a kind of innocence, we just open our hearts. And what's, what is beautiful is I'm back to surprise. Like, I was so surprised this morning. I got my feelings all cooled up. I mean, and we're singing those songs. I'm going, oh, I feel the presence of God in an unusual way. I, I wasn't trying to keep up with what happened in the past. I'm just open to what God wants to do in the now. And when I don't feel anything, I'm okay with that. Because I didn't come here to feel. And if I hear the scriptures taught, and if I don't, I don't try to get fed, what does that even mean? I just am not fed there. What does that even mean? And is it the scriptures? Are we listening to the word of the Lord? Are we opening our hearts to God? No, I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm just trying to say, uh, lower your expectations. And when you do, you might be surprised that God will meet you. And if we keep a state of innocence, we might be surprised at how much God begins to lead us and direct us. That was free. <laughs> this season of epiphany, you say, why are you standing down there? I just want to. Uh, this season of epiphany is the time where we rejoice over the claim that God is a God who wants to make God's self known. That, I mean, there isn't really adequate language to communicate what that even means. I mean, uh, what's really going on when people have a moment that they believe God seems to become known to them. 
I mean, the knowledge isn't exactly like other knowings uh, because it carries a kind of mystery with it. Though it's real in, in some unexplainable way, those of us that have had these moments of encounter with the divine go, something's there, right? Uh, it's not too distant from the claim, I am in love. Somebody says, well, how do you know you're in love? What is that? Act? What is that? And you kind of go, there's something in my knower that kind of knows this. It isn't the same way of knowing gravity, but it's a certain knowing, right? In spiritual moments that seem real, the theological explanation is that the Holy Spirit who awakens something in us within the individual, within the lived experience of the individual. And there's so many reports through history. This is one of my favorite ones. It's a sampler of an individual's description of the moment in which uh, they encountered the divine. I think some of you will appreciate this. I've shared it with you before, but it's one of my favorites. Quote, I remember the night and almost the very spot on the hilltop where my soul opened out, as it were, into the infinite. And there was a rushing together of the two worlds, the inner and the outer. It was deep calling unto deep. The deep that my own struggle had opened up within being answered by the unfathomable deep without reaching beyond the stars. I stood alone with him who had made me and all the beauty of the world. The perfect stillness of the night was thrilled by a more solemn silence the darkness held a presence that was all the more felt because it was not seen. I could not any more have doubted that he was there than that I was. Indeed, I felt myself to be, if possible, the less real of the two. End quote. Shazam. There's something, you may not have exactly this kind of description, but there's something that all of us that have encountered God articulate around this kind of thing. It's a bit like Abraham, who, or rather Moses, who's walking in the desert and he comes across this bush that's burning. It catches his eyes, his eye, but he's a little freaked out, so he takes off his shoes. He knows in some way this is a different kind of place, a holy kind of place. How do you describe that? A bush on fire that doesn't burn. What do you do with that? See, that's something what we mean when we talk about epiphany, that God somehow appears in your life. It catches your attention. Describe that. No, you don't know how. Just take off your shoes. We celebrate this kind of thing during the season called epiphany. For those of you who have not had anything like this happen heretofore, welcome. Welcome. And you may have something happen today, something wonderful that you can look forward to. Maybe it can happen today as we come to the table. But please note, even when it does happen, there's a kind of double-sided coin to it. Part of it is, this is God, and part of it is, was this really God? Always there. Always a bit of a question. Because faith is not certainty. Faith is just there in the face of uncertainty. There's a, I gave you a quote a few weeks back, but it bears repetition. It's from Blaise Pascal. He's a scientist from the 17th century. He's the guy that discovered vacuums and created one with some machinery. Here's what he wrote. If God had wished to overcome the obstinacy of the most hardened, 
He could have done so by plainly revealing himself to them, uh, rather done so by revealing himself to them so plainly that they could not doubt the truth of his essence. But God chooses not to be recognized only by those who sincerely sought him. They're only by those, I only be recognized, sorry, I'm thinking ahead of myself and not reading this. By those who sincerely sought him, recognized by those who sincerely sought him, there is enough light for those who desire only to see, watch, but enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition, end quote. See, faith isn't about hard science jammed with absolutes. It's much more like romance or like beauty. How do you define beauty? Or like poetry. Certainly they have words, but something beyond words is taking place in that stuff. Lord, I believe, is what one guy said in the scripture while he also said to the Lord, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Faith always has belief and unbelief in it, or it isn't true faith. When you run into fundamentalists who always say, no, this is exactly it, this is exactly what it is, all they're doing is putting their head in the sand of fundamentalism. True faith always questions. And you know what? God can handle the question. Epiphany is not only our time, though, to celebrate the fact that God makes God's self known. It's also a time for us to carefully consider how we, as followers of God, are called to to really make God known to others, to others that are within the scope of our interests, to others that we work with, live with, our family with, friends with. It's somehow our call to make, to be a witness to this reality of encounter with the living God. Now, our gospel text speaks of a way of being. Jesus says that we're to be, have a carry this kind of sense of being poor, this sense of mourning, and iterates a number of things we'll go through in a second. And in this kind of being, we make God known. I love that because I used to think that the way we make God known is by preaching at people, right? Sitting down with them and making them listen, right? And persuading them and arguing with them about their beliefs. But the texts and the story of the gospel does not, or the story of the history of the church does not bear that out. It's much more about being than it is about talking. And so here Jesus says the way of being starts with being poor in spirit, which just simply means never, you and I are never experts at faith. We're never experts. We're always standing at the threshold of the infinite. How do you describe infinity? Where do you begin? There's no beginning. Where's its middle? There is no middle and there is no end. It's like walking up to the Grand Canyon. What do you do there? You know, you can't really articulate what that's about. So we somehow come with that kind of sense of poverty of spirit. Or he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Somehow, if we're willing to be a mournful people, what that means is that we acknowledge that life gives. There's much gift, but there's also deep loss. Jesus is saying if we do not mourn, if we do not recognize our losses and the losses of those who are around us in a world that's fallen, we will not be comforted, nor will we be able to comfort. 
This is uh, John Holdsworth. This is a quote that he says about the church. I find it really interesting. He says, quote, the church is a place where the fundamental questions raised by the possibilities of God's absence can dialogue with the traditions that assert his presence. In other words, the real person who is a believer understands that oftentimes God looks as absent as he looks present. And that we're okay with the tension of that. That's what faith is, living in that tension. It's a kind of dance between the recognition, recognition of the fact that God brings gifts to us and he's always present over against the reality that loss, that looks like God actually abandoned us is in our lives. And by embracing those two seemingly opposite poles, it makes us be a kind of people that matter. We're not just positivists, even though we're Americans still. We are not just victors, but we are sons and daughters of a God who has placed us in a soul-forming world where we have more questions than answers, and yet we live in hope. (laughs) Scandalous, really. Then Jesus goes on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek inherit the earth. I thought it was the grabbers, takers, destroyers that inherited the earth. Not so with Jesus. Meekness is just the ability, again, to not demand being the champion. It's the ability of living well with humility, even if it makes you win or even if it makes you lose. The goal isn't something. The goal is living some way. You remember in the book of Acts, they call the Christian faith the way, not the belief, the way. Then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? You want things to be right. You want them to be right in your person. You want them to be right between you and others that you're connected with. You want them to be right in the context in which you work and in the culture in which you live. You're hungry and thirsty for right. Again, right sometimes means you don't get everything exactly the way you want it. Then he says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Some of us are so black and white. Mercy is not black and white. It's 18% neutral gray. And that makes some people crazy. Well, what am I supposed to do? What's the answer? Yes. This is our call to be merciful, to not be always black and white, to not be always trying to get payback or making sure people get what they deserve so they understand their circum- that their actions have repercussions. Right? This is a pushback from the, the famous Lex Talionis. That's the famous claim that was embedded in the Jewish tradition and other ancient traditions that there should be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a hand for a hand. There's just something about that seems right. You poke at my eye, just seems appropriate. I get to poke out yours. Come here. Right? You did that, cut my hand off. Come on, that's cool. Come on, come here. Let's get to your hand cut off. Then we'll kind of even the score. It's cool, it's good. It just feels right, feels right, right? And yet Jesus said, you heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He said, no. Somebody slaps you across the face. Turn the other cheek. He's not saying for you to be abused. He's just saying you have strength that others don't have. 
That when you get slapped across the face, you don't face, you don't have to respond from the sting. You can respond from another place, the healthy part. That you're connected with God and God is the healer. So when people try to hurt you, you don't have to retaliate. They may not know the healer, but you do. You can afford it. It's like when your children are little. You know, I remember when Michael, my oldest, was just six months old. I'm telling you, he'd wake up in the middle of the night and you changed the diaper, you fed him, you did everything you're supposed to do. And he would still cry. And I'd think to myself, you're doing this on purpose. You're doing this so I don't sleep. You know how you get in the middle of the night, you don't think, right? I'm thinking, this is a communist plot. You're out to destroy me. I thought, wait, 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 wait a minute. I am the parent. This is the child. I am the parent. This is the child. I am the parent. What does that mean? I can afford this. You are the believer. They may not be. You are the believer. They may not be. You are the believer. They're the slapper. You're the believer. What do you do? You can afford this. See yourself rightly. Because as you be that way, as you live that way, you will cause them to go, what's that? And now you begin to understand how we're to be witnesses in the world. Then he says, blessed are the poor in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Oh, God help us. What this means is you're an agendaless person. You're not, you deal open-handedly with the people in your life. You're not trying to just get them to like you or to applaud you uh, or to get your way because we live in a I want my way world. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know what they do? They see God. Because you didn't fight for what you want, because you didn't manipulate for what you want, somehow God is on the back end and meets you in surprising ways. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. What does that mean, peacemakers? That means we refuse violence. We're not violent in our words. We're not violent in our actions. We seek to ensure that all things are appropriate between myself and the other person. I really am not very good at this. I get too violent with my words. I get to, right? Because I do, such a way to control the world is blathering. So I'm in, this is one of the reasons why every, every day, pretty much, it's embedded in the Book of Common Prayer and the prayers we pray. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. What am I thinking of most of the time? I'm violent. Not violent hitting people but violent in that I want to control my world with demands, not kind enough words. Mm. Then Jesus says that being this way makes us like light, which is an epiphany word, right? He says in verse 14, you're the light of the world when you live this way. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl and said they put it on its stand and they give light to everyone in the house? See, we think we're to give light to our culture and light to them because we want to vote this way or we want to speak this way or we want to argue this way. I'm not saying those things aren't appropriate. It's just that's not what Jesus had in mind when he said you're light. He had in mind that we're a certain kind of people. That by the virtue of the way we live as peacemakers and as, as the meek, and as the ones who hunger for right, and as the ones who are poor 
and not think too much of ourselves. We are like a light on a hill. People are going to notice. And if they don't notice us, it's not because we're not blathering enough. It's because we're not living well enough. Somehow he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see. There's an epiphany phrase. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, this way of living will help people see God in your world. Jesus also said that being this way makes us like salt. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except thrown out, trampled underfoot. I don't know about you, but I love salt. I love salt too much. I mean, I like to put salt on almost everything. I mean, you can eat eggs, but then you can eat eggs with salt on it, and I mean, it's better. There's just something about salt that when you put it on it, you just go, it just tastes better. See, what God wants for you, if you are this way, if you be this way, if you have this kind of being where you're carrying these attitudes, some people call them the beatitudes, and then they kind of, it doesn't work in any other language, but be attitudes, right? These attitudes of being. Somehow when you do this and you're living in people's lives or you're living in their home or you're living on, with them on the job or you're working next side by side or you're attending church with them, when you walk in, everybody goes, you're like salt to the earth. And they go, oh, it just tastes better when you're here. Just working with you, it's just better than when, when you're not here. That is our claim to fame. That is our call to being witnesses, that we're a different people. What our gospel says to me is that you and I can make a difference in the world we inhabit through the way we live. I think we should be burdened with the sense that we must encourage people to faith. Not violently, not in a way that we see ourselves more holy or better than others, and not even by using many words, as I've already said. But by carrying these attitudes, by living in a certain way, St. Francis, who's credited with this saying, even though we don't know for sure he really said it, but he's credited with this saying, always preach the gospel. Always preach the gospel. Sometimes use words. I grew up as an evangelical saying, always preach the gospel, always use words, lots of words. Persuasive words, invasive words, sometimes threatening words, you're going to go to hell. And let me share how I try to go through this now. I'm not an expert on this business that I'm asking everybody to imitate me by any stretch of the imagination, but I have found a couple of things that have seemed to be right. Two little secrets I want to share from you. One is just an idea, and the second one is out of that famous story about being a neighbor. So, first part is I believe everyone's life, every person I run into, carries a sacred story. I believe God's involved with every life we encounter. And I don't care if they're Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, doesn't matter, atheist, agnostic, doesn't matter. Just because someone doesn't acknowledge and understand the working of God like we do doesn't mean God's not working. Famous story, Acts 14. There's a miracle that happens. After the miracle takes place, everybody starts calling, the, or, you know, starts running and grabbing the, the, the priests that were in this, uh, this temple of Zeus, right? 
Zeus be praised, right? That's what they were into. And they said, a miracle has happened. The gods have come among us. And so they had taken a legitimate miracle done in the name of Jesus Christ. They co-opted it into a narrative that they understood. Zeus had done a miracle. So they bring animals to sacrifice to Paul, who they think is Hermes, and, and uh, Barnabas, who they think is Zeus. And they bring the animals to sacrifice to them. And when they do that, Paul realized what they're doing. He said, no, 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 we're just people like you. But listen to what Paul says. He said, God, you, you got this confused. You've co-opted a, a miracle into your, everyday, into your narrative, you understand. But God is not mad at you, he says. Even with your misunderstanding of what God does, God has still witnessed and does now witness of his real presence in your life. How? By sending rain, by sending sunshine, and listen, by filling your hearts with all the joy that you know. See, when they had happy times like harvest, they praised Zeus. When they, had, when, when they fell in love, when they, when they had babies and they're bringing those babies, they thanked Hermes. When, when they're going through their lives, all the good of their lives, friendships and, and marriages and all that stuff, they thanked Zeus. Paul says, yeah, you're thanking the wrong guy. It's the true God. But yet, even though people get it mixed up, notice God keeps working in their lives. So when I talk to people, I always think, I wonder what God's doing in your life, and I wonder what story you've put it in, what narrative you've shoved what God is doing in your life. But I never think, you're lucky I showed up because God wasn't here before me, and anything good in your life has been demon good. Until you ask Jesus into your life, everything else is worthless. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love Jesus, and I think Jesus is the best revelation of what we understand about God. But you know what? I don't think God is near as freaked out about it as we are. Because he keeps acting in people's lives, sending them rain, sending them harvest, and filling their lives with joy. So the first thing I do is I observe, I listen, I engage, I trust that God is already there, and then I try to reflect God's care to that person by celebrating their story, by leaning into them, and by being a good neighbor. I'm not talking about uh, uh, American Family Insurance. Um, being a good neighbor to them, asking myself, how can I begin to engage with them and look for ways in which they're hurting in which I can reflect God's care to them? And that's this story that I want to finish with. This is out of Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you know anything about scripture, you understand that the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings with each other. They kind of thought the Samaritans were lower class, odd people. Not true. They didn't truly worship. They didn't truly have engagement in a society that was just. They were just the other, a little odd, and they just don't want to talk to them, right? That kind of thing. So here's this occasion, Jesus said. An expert of the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? <laughs> Interesting question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you got that. That's good. Do this and you'll live. <laughs> Ends the conversation. But the guy goes, oh, well, wanting to justify himself. Uh, who exactly is my neighbor? And then Jesus launches into this. In reply, Jesus said, this guy was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, what do you think, a priest would be a good dude, happened to be going along the same road, but when he saw the other man, he sort of just passed on the other side, didn't see it. So to a Levite, 
religious guy, when he came to the other came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, what a smack. The Samaritan does the good thing, the right thing. Then the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. He saw him and took pity on him. He empathized with the situation. He let the situation touch him, be inconvenienced by it. He went to him, bandaged his wound, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two dairy money and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, in other words, I'm not just abandoning this guy. I return, I will check back. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Jesus said, which one of these three guys do you think was the neighbor? To the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him, blessed are the merciful. Jesus told him, oh, do that. Now, there are four stages here. I want to go through real quickly. In this text, that make us good neighbors. The kind who make, who have a distinct way of being and who make God known to people around us. Stage one is just take note of people in your context who are hurting. Notice them. Jesus said the priest came, walked to the other side. What did he do? Is he too busy? Maybe. What, maybe he thought the same thing would happen to him if he lingered. That guy got beat up. Maybe someone's come around to beat up somebody else. But not me. I got to get to church. So the Levite came. <coughs> we don't know what he was thinking, but he didn't stop. But the Samaritan does. We know he was some kind of a merchant because he, from later in the story, the guy that was laying on the ground wasn't one of his own group. This guy was from a different group. The beaten guy was foreign to him. And yet he stops and lets the beaten man's plight grab him and change how what he was going to do. Stage one is simply just letting those in pain, notice those in pain, let it grip you and stop it means getting involved, even when it is inconvenient. It means that you're empathetic and that you stop and try to think, what is that person experiencing? Not from my vantage point, but from the person's vantage point. Stage two. Do what you can, but not more than you can. Now we're getting into some areas that a lot of us have missed it and why we don't help people. Is either we don't notice it, or once we notice it, we jump so far in it, we get in trouble. This Samaritan helped the wounded guy with what he had. He had some bandages, so he bandaged the wounds. He had some oil and wine, so he put that on the, on the uh, used that as healing salve. I don't know if that would really work, but it's the best he had, right? He had a donkey, put the guy on the donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. He had some resources that he used basically to do triage on the guy. But notice what he did not do. He didn't walk up to the guy and tell him four spiritual laws. For years, my only interest in helping people was the hope of using their situation to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. My understanding of salvation at the time. At one of the churches I pastored, we'd, we'd bring in food, you know, because so many people were hurting. We'd bring in all this food and bag it all up and we'd have all kinds of groceries like a turkey blitz but we did it every, every month and we invited people to come to the church that were going through hard times it was back in the 80s when a lot of people were going through that recession and we'd have them come in and get food but, um, but here's how that played when they came we'd make them sign up give us their contact information which was kind of invasive right I mean I don't know how many people like being known they came for food 
It's a bit shaming, but you know, we might want to visit them. Then we herded them into an area before we gave them anything and we preached to them. We were willing to give them groceries, but we needed to let them let us preach to them and have an altar call. Because really what we were bringing there was not so much to help them, but maybe to win someone to Christ. After I witnessed this firsthand, I remember the first day when I was in there, I felt so horrible. And I told our staff, I said, listen, we will never do this again. If we're going to help people, we're going to help people. No signups, no questions, no preaching, no altar calls. We're just going to be wasteful in loving them. No agenda. See, God spoke to me from that text in Matthew. It's a little later on in this piece we just read, where Jesus said, I want you to be like my children, children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, if you want to be like God, you and I, if we want to reveal God, that means we have to have some level of common grace where we just celebrate people and engage with people and help people because they need help. Not because we want something to happen. (laughs) I did not give an agenda list approach as an evangelical. My giving carried an agenda. I need converts. A couple weeks ago, I was in Mexico. My brother Mark and I, Gail and several others were there, and they took us out on a boat to go fishing. And I'll tell you what, we used poles, we used lines, we used bait that we thought the fish liked. And we, what the fish needed. But we weren't just fishing giving them bait. We had an agenda. We wanted to catch them. See, I think God is the fisher person who has no agenda. I think God knows exactly what we need, exactly what we want. He comes up in his boat and throws all the bait in the water. No strings, no pole, no hook, no fisherman's hat, fisherman's boots. He just throws it all in. And if somebody happens to get so excited where the bait's coming from, they leap and fall in the boat, hey, welcome. The agendaless fisher person. This is God. God's okay if we jump in. God's okay if we don't. He'll still throw the bait at us. Why does he do that? He just likes us. He just loves humanity. He just keeps giving. Well, I don't know if that's smart. Yeah, we'll have that conversation with God. Nor did the Samaritan try to correct the guy, saying, hey, dude, um, you're walking in a sketchy part of, town, you know, part of town alone. Wasn't too good. You know, just, I just need to correct this. Or be teachy. You know, there's too many people that they think when they see need, they've got to be teachy. There was one lady in the church that we pastored in Wisconsin that always had something to teach, right? Every time something would happen, anytime somebody was in trouble, she'd want to go and start teaching them, talking about why they were in this trouble. There's a lady that that had, could, took a child, a full-term stillborn child, and they're weeping. And she came up to me and said, can I go visit them in the hospital? I said, well, that's lovely. She said, well, I just want to talk to them about, you know, maybe how they could have avoided this. I said, stay away from them. Go away. Right? When you encounter people in pain, don't get preachy or teachy. Just simply tender their wounds with kindness, a listening ear, and invite them to journey with you. Put them on your beast. Bring them along. And then stage three, most critical stage. This is where he went to him, bandaged his wounds, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an end, 
to take care of him. The next day, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, look after him. He said, and when I return, everybody say, and when I return. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The phrase, and when I return, is so important because what it says is even though the Samaritan stopped and listened, engaged, and was inconvenienced and brought whatever strength he had to this man's life, he did not stop his journey. He continued his journey. He took the beaten one to others who could help. Now, where most of us get tripped up in giving to hurting people is that we don't remember to continue our own journey. We feel guilty that we're moving on when somebody's hurting so much in our presence. And we run into people who have shipwrecked their own lives. We just feel like we've got to do more, do more, do more. And we stop our own journey. We end up getting absorbed into the painful journey of the one who's sitting or lying before us. And if you're not careful here, you'll be sucked more into the pain of others than instead of in drawing them into the strength and into the joy and into the stability of your own life. This is so dangerous, but so easy to do. Why? Because there's something in us that relishes the idea of being a hero. Most Americans have a kind of hero messiah complex that feeds our longing for purpose and uniqueness. We want to believe that there's people that only I can help. It just makes us feel better when somebody says, you're the only one that can really help me. Oh, others can, but I'll stay. (laughs) Additionally, to not be everything to a hurting person, what that hurting person wants you to be, means you will disappoint that person. And there's something that says, I can't disappoint them. They've been so hurt already. They've been so disappointed already. And we stop our journey and we get absorbed into the pain. To be a good neighbor, one who reflects God, makes God known, you must be willing to admit that you are never going to be enough. And it ha- you have to take the ground that, when you're, that these people that are in pain have to recognize that you are not enough and that God will reveal himself or her, uh, to them, but they have got to be willing to hear God through others, not just one. This is the greatest way to discern if a person you're trying to help is dangerous because do not trick yourself. Some people that are lying on the side of the road are dangerous. They're the zoo people. You know, you go to a zoo, see violent animals, the reason you can go there is there's some separation, right? There's some people, you've got to keep some separation or they will eat you. They will destroy you. And the way you can tell if this person is dangerous is are they okay with you continuing your journey? Or are they asking you to own theirs? And two, are they okay with others helping? Or do they say that you're the only one who can really help them? Or that they have only been through all this hard stuff and, how, and have only, they've been tossed from person to person and if you leave now, I mean, I feel like everything's gonna fall apart. See, all of those emotional pulls are from the evil one. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. If you don't know that quote, that's because you're too young and you're a poor, unfortunate soul. (laughs) I call them the lamprey eel people. (laughs) The reason I got that was from in the Great Lakes area. I grew up, for the most part, in Wisconsin. They're these lamprey eels. They're these weird little snaky things that come up to fish, you know, just 
real gently. Don't want to stir him up. Just, hi. How are you? Pretty good. Could I just be here with you? Oh, yes. Well, just let me just, can I just, just bump up against you? And they go, <laughs> and they suck the hit. And the hitch has got this worm thing, this snaky thing on it. And they may try to move, but just wants to be with them all the time. Just, well, where are you going? I, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. But what people don't know is, the fish doesn't know, is that it has these razor-sharp teeth. And it starts going, the fish starts bleeding, starts getting a little tired. Just, all of a sudden, it breaks through and sucks all the innards out of the fish. And you know what that fish does after that? Holtz. Just no life in its eyes because that they were ministering to that lamprey eel person. <laughs> and there are people like that. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hey, how are you? Really good. <laughs> I'm so glad you talked to me. <laughs> Well, how can I help you? Well, you know, I have these issues. You know, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I just, I just, just like being with you. And uh, what are you doing later? Uh, you're going. Can I go with you? I just, I just want to kind of be with you. Just, I. What are you doing tomorrow? And can you call me later? I just, I really need you, ma'am. Nobody cares for me, ma'am. Now, I'm not making fun of people that have deep pain. I'm just saying people who have deep pain can be deeply dangerous. And before you know it, they will drill into your soul and suck out your blood and you will feel more and more tired. And before you know it, there you are. I tell you as a pastor in the church for over 40 years that some of you sitting here really love people. But you know you don't, why you don't get engaged? You know when you see hurting, you kind of slip to the other side, put an offering in the basket, hope somebody else will get in there because you have been the victim of lamprey eel people. And you come, and when you think about getting engaged, you just kind of go, you just, it's not that you're walking by, you're floating by. No life in your eyes. You know how painful it was, and you don't know how to discern it, so you don't go. So stage one, take note of people who are hurting. Stage two, do what you can, not more than you can. Stage three is continue in journey. And stage four is real simple. Simply check back. Don't forget them. Pray for them. Be willing to be involved with them as long as you can coordinate it with a community of help. See, being a certain way, these beatitudes, and acting towards those in pain when they are in pain will make God known. You will participate. In epiphany. We don't have a sense of control in this. We trust God. Even Paul himself says, our confidence is not in ourselves. There's anything coming from ourselves, but our confidence is in God. As we be in these ways, we're trusting God. What we do, we do with a view to the risen Christ. And all we're really trying to do is what the moon does. You know what the moon does? The moon shines. Remember your kids were little? Oh, look, the moon is shining. Well, yeah, at some point you had to tell them, really, it's not. The moon has no light. Sorry to disappoint you. The moon has zero light. If you've been enamored by the moon, you've been tricked. It has no light. All the moon has are craters and a dark side. 
And truth be told, if we look closely at you, all you really have are craters and a dark side. Our only hope is to position like the moon does. Different times of the month, it gets a little more, a little more in a different position where it picks up more light. And all it really does is reflect borrowed light. Our hope to be a light in the world is not about us lighting up and not about us doing something, not about our confidence in ourselves, but it's about positioning ourselves by being poor of the spirit, meek in our understanding, humble, open, hungry for rightness, willing to mourn. It's when we position ourselves in these ways of being that we capture more and more and more light and then we reflect it to the world. They may think it's us, but we know it's not us. It's borrowed Light. So, basically what I'm telling you is our call is to moon the world. 